You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a paper from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. This online workshop re-examined ancient perceptions of nature, power and power over nature to better understand our current environmental crisis. The workshop, which was organised by Matthew Mandich and Giacomo Savani, took place on the 26th of February 2021. This episode features a paper by Tressa Bell from Yale University. Her lecture, Manufactured Women and the Aesthetics of the Anthropocene, was introduced by Jason Koenig from the University of St Andrews. Our next speaker is Tressa Bell. Um, Tressa is a six-year uh, graduate student at, at Yale in the Classics Department. Um, her dissertation is entitled Hideous Progeny, the Monster as a Metapoetic Topos in Latin Hexameter. She argues there um, for a connection between monsters and intertextual practices in ancient poetry. Um, her research focuses also on, on the personified text as an aesthetic object in Greco-Roman literature, for example, examining how ugly, deformed, flawed figures um, embody various literary qualities. Um, Tressa's interests include um, uh, allusion, intertext, notions of genre, um, and also the intersignification of the body and the poetic corpus in antiquity. Um, and Tressa's title today is Puellae in an Anthropocentric World. Tressa, all yours. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. And uh, thank you to Giacomo and Matthew for organising this event. So in this paper, I want to consider how artistic creations in ancient texts provide no comment on the notion of the good Anthropocene as expressed by Latour in his essay, Love Your Monsters. And my plan is to do this by thinking about the role of manufactured women with specific focus on the metamorphoses depiction of Pygmalion's beloved Averna and the Theogony's Pandora. The various texts in which they appear present these women as combinations of the natural and the artificial, hybrid creatures who have a share in both human and non-human forms. And as such, they introduce tensions regarding, regarding man's ability to successfully restructure the natural. They raise questions as to how we should interact with Anthropocene creations. Furthermore, in their respective poems, each woman is used to represent an artistic object, more specifically the text itself. And in light of this, I want to pose the following question. Since texts are products of natural materials like papyrus and pigments, in combination with technological skills like writing, to what degree might engagement with them also be an Anthropocene issue? Before turning to the good Anthropocene, I want first to emphasize the ancient tradition which depicts the creation of women as a separate process from the creation of man. And a textbook example of this convention is Simonides Fragment 7. In this poem, Simonides represents women as a separate species with its own subcategories. Each woman is formed from a different material, usually an animal, but also from the ocean or the earth. The fragment portrays women as artifices, technological products formed through a combination of natural materials and artistic skills. They have a share of the natural, but are also outside of the category of the strictly human. As the poet says, the God made women different 
chorus. The women under discussion today embody similar fusions of the natural and the artificial. Each woman is associated with the natural resource from which she is created. In the, in the theogony, Pandora is fashioned from the earth. In the metamorphoses, a burner is created from stone. Furthermore, the women are depicted as created by a craftsman in response to the natural state of the world. Pandora is punishment for humanity's use of fire. A burner is born from Pygmalion's disgust at sex. The women are, if you will, products of the Anthropocene. They are depicted as the progeny of man's ability to reshape nature to his whims and desires. Moreover, in each narrative, the women are understood as technological products. They imply not only the ability to shape, but also to dominate and transform nature. And this is where the notion of the good Anthropocene and its rhetoric comes into my argument. So in his 2011 essay, Latour, uh, it's called Love Your Monsters, Latour identifies two potential reactions to the Anthropocene. And he's critical of the first, which he labels as the, as the desire to reject technology in favor of preserving nature. Instead, for Latour, in this article at least, uh, we should aim to be what he calls compositionists. Moving in the new milieu of the Anthropocene, we should focus on becoming increasingly intimate with new natures that we are constantly creating. This is the appropriate type of mastery over the natural world, not an approach that craves total dominance over or even emancipation from nature, but one which seeks increasing involvement with it. And there are various problems with the, the good Anthropocene as a socio-political approach. At the final slide, I have a, a reference to uh, an article by Douglas, which provides a structured critique. Here, I'm not interested in whether or not the, this good Anthropocene is the right uh, approach to take to the environmental challenges that are posed by the Anthropocene era. Rather, I want to grapple with, or I want to explore the degree to which ancient attitudes to man's potential reshaping of the natural grapple with similar issues. Latour's compositionist motivation is especially interesting when we consider two factors that permeate stories of created women. First, these women are meant to be integrated with. They are created with the purpose of being sexually involved with men. They thus represent in a very literal manner Latour's premise that we should become intimate with the non-human natures that we are creating. Second, the narratives of their creation intersect with concerns of mastery and dominance, as well as with those of integration. These created women represent the tension of whether we ought to embrace or subjugate nature. The first woman in the Theogony is created as a punishment for mankind's desire to dominate the natural environment. That is his use of fire to see at night, to keep warm and to turn the raw into the cooked. And in return for the theft of fire, Zeus has a variety of gods create a cacon, an evil thing, as punishment. Unlike in the works and days where Pandora is named, the proto-female creation of the Theogony is anonymous. And to pay tribute to this distinction, I'll be calling this creation the cacon, that is the evil thing, throughout my talk, as that's the most consistent reference for it in the text. The cacon is created anti-poros, a phrase which primarily means in return for fire. But also because of the flexibility of the preposition anti's meanings, it can be loosely translated as either an opposite to fire or an equivalent to fire. Like fire, this being is a fusion of natural resource and technological product. And like fire, the creation requires vigilance or else it will cause great damage. 
Still, in the increasingly shifting world of the theogony, as the universe and its rules are forced to adapt to the birth and behaviors of various generations of gods and men, the kakon is a necessary evil. Like fire, once mankind possesses this technological advantage, they cannot retreat to where they came from. Men need women to produce and multiply. The question is therefore raised in the poem as to how to relate to this new creature. In Latour's phrasing, what kind of mastery should be aimed at in interacting with it, emancipation from it, or the compositionist fusion. This is a key dilemma that the Theogony's narrative surrounding the creation of women represents. But the issue of fusion has an extra layer of meaning in the textual world. As woman, the Cacon embodies Hesiod's principle that men must interact with their wives in a specific manner. As artistic object, however, the Cacon raises the specter of a different kind of fusion. How are we to engage with art? And the Cacon thus represents the dilemma of interacting with the Anthropocene product on both an artistic and a real world level. The presentation of the Cacon as artistic object is signaled by Hesiod's grammatical choices in the episode. Um, and as I've said, it's Cacon a bad thing. So he's using the neuter to refer to this object primarily as opposed to the masculine or feminine grammatical genders. In his 1966 commentary on the Theogony, Martin West, speculating on why Hesiod chooses a non-feminine gender, suggests that it's either masculine for feminine or the neuter form. And he inclines towards Cacon being neuter, and I obviously agree. I want to add that Hesiod often refers to this object in the neuter or with nouns that are not obviously feminine. And so he calls it variously a likeness of a revered virgin, that is not a virgin pure and simple. That's at line um, 572, a kalon kakon at line 585, a dolon ipun and an ame kanon at line 589. Moreover, the theogony does not tell us that the object is the first woman. Rather, the poet informs us that from her, Ectes, the race of women comes. That is to say, Hesia does not claim that she is a woman herself. A similar technique is used in Simonides 7, where the poet describes each type of woman as from Ek, a range of creatures and materials that she resembles but is not the same as. In other words, the in the Theogony, women as a group descend from the Cacon and share attributes with her, but they are not identical to her. Only twice in the 21 lines describing its creation is the feminine used of this object, the participle agalomenein in line 586 and the phrase ectes in line 590. And I'll interpret, I'll return later to how I interpret this gender switch. In the works and days, the poet informs us that the woman was called Pandora because all the gods gave gifts to her. The cacon of the theogony is unnamed, rendering the creation status as a thing rather than a person all the more conspicuous. Indeed, the cacon of the theogony is created like and subsequently dressed as a cult statue. The potter god molds it from, from clay, some place in line 571. Next, Athena adorns and girdles it in clothing, a cleverly worked veil, flower garlands, and as the finishing touch, a golden headband. In short, this creature is best understood not as a living, breathing woman, but as an object crafted from natural materials to create a technological product that resembles a woman. This status as artistic object is one that the Cacon shares with another piece of plastic art in the description, her exquisite headband, or Stephane, an object that's also fashioned by Hephaestus. A key term here is thalma, which means marvel, and this word is deployed three times by Hesiod when describing the making of the Cacon. At line 575, probably of the headdress, 
then at 581 of the headband, and finally in line 588, when personified, Thamo grabs hold of the gods as they look at the completed object. Indeed, the cacon is likened to crafted ob so the cacon is likened to crafted objects, headdresses, and headbands. Each is a marvelous thing, and its marvelousness is felt by the act of looking. This comparison is even more emphatic in the case of the headband. The same verb tuko is used for the creation of both cacon and headband. Moreover, this is a verb commonly deployed in the creation of artwork and objects throughout early Greek hexameter poetry. But the cacon is not just like the headband. She also resembles uh, the beasts, the knodala, that are engraved upon it. So Hephaestus put many daidala knodala, the poet says, on the headband. Um, daidalos is a word currently recurrently used to refer to the earth, fertility, and craft much like the cacon is a fertile, crafty thing formed from the earth. These knodala, or beasts, and the cacon are both referred to as thermasia by the poet. Indeed, the knodala are so well made that they are like to living things with voices, just as the cacon was the likeness of a shy virgin. That is to say, the object mirrors both a completed artistic product, the headband, and the characters within an artistic product, the knodala or beasts. Initially in the passage, the cacon is equivalent to a marvelous artwork. Um, but next, Hesiod presents a different view of it. Just after this ekphrasis, we have the first use of the feminine participle and then the feminine definite article. The cacon's status has shifted from that of an object. We're now talking about a woman. In other words, it's somehow become real. The poet, by moving from neuter to feminine genders, is signaling a shift in its status as thing to woman, a movement from artistic object to living creation. The Theogony's cacon thus becomes an enactment in some way of artistic success. The creation of the cacon thus pits the real against the copy, the natural against the artificial. And in both the Theogony and the works and days, the purpose of this woman is to deceive Hesiod makes clear that the object's surface beauty belies an ugly interior. She is a dolon ipoon, a sheer trap that deceives in its exteriors and holds evil within. Um, and homos, her dolos is used in Homeric poetry for a range of objects of great artistic skill that are beautiful on the inside, but bring great pain. So in the Odyssey, it's used for the Trojan horse is, is probably the best example of that. The Theogony's cacon is simultaneously a beautiful artistic object proffered for an audience's appreciation and a being which causes great anxiety regarding its duplicity. And it shares this status with poetry itself as famously depicted in the poem's proem. On initial impression, the cacon seems to have similarity with the type of utterance that is false, but appears like truth since its beautiful exterior camouflages a deceptive core. Yet the cacon also has an inherent share in truth. It begins as a piece of crafted artifice, but at the end of the description, its status has changed to some kind of living object. The linguistic and gender changes chart the process of the cacon attaining a reality. Furthermore, though artificial in her exterior, the newly realized woman is also a vehicle for poetry to communicate an eternal real world truth about male and female relations. So her contradictions, her status as both object and woman, both real and crafted, both an artifice and a truth, are the contradictions of poetry that the Hesiodic Muses originally introduced us to. And as readers, this object leaves us in something of a dilemma. 
How are we to interact with it? Should we aim to emancipate ourselves from its undeniable charms? Or should we enfold ourselves in the text and abandon ourselves to the inevitable complexities of fiction? In the lines following her realization, the cacon resembles the shepherds of the proem. Hesiod presents her as a mere belly, a thing of shame. Um, note that kakos is used here to modify elenchia. Um, and it's interesting that uh, like the cacon, the shepherds are referred to in two difficult, different grammatical genders, both masculine and neuter in these lines. So the drone simile. Um, the cacon begets more traps and snares for poor men who toil away like busy bees to keep their home and society upright and well-oiled. She will now create creatures like her. There'll be drones in men's houses and they will attend only to their gas stairs, their bellies. Like the drones in the hive of this image, the cacon is an object concerned with her gas stair and there are three particular points of correspondence. First, she eats up everything she's given. Second, her belly or womb is the begetter of further pains for the human race. And finally, like a belly, the cacon conceals things within an interior. In the works and days, the creation of Pandora results in the opening of her jar. Left unattended, she leashes all evils into the world. As Anthropocene product, Pandora dramatizes the potential disasters of technological advances, the various retributions in return for literally playing with fire. Out from the jar come diseases and misfortunes, and the landscape of the world is forever changed by her actions. Within the jar, on the lip, rests hope. And following Zeitlin, most scholars take this emphasis on hope here to be an image of the potential for children, the one good thing that can come out of the relationship with women. A similar thread runs through the Theogony. The focus on the belly of the cacon figures her not solely as an embodiment of Hesiodic poetics, but also as a mother figure. As in the works and days, the female figure always brings disastrous consequences, but there is also the potential for productive interaction if negotiated with in the correct manner. In the Theogony's universe, it is hard not to infer that this integration is necessarily one of suppression and careful control. Wives and children are constantly figured throughout as disruptive forces who continually cause cosmic strife and uproar. It would be hard to envisage Hesiod as an average compositionist. The issue in the Theogony is how to interact with the products of a world changed by the continued altering of nature. I believe the Pygmalion narrative in Ovid's Metamorphoses provides a deliberate parallel to the creation of the Cacon and Theogony. Through the narrative of the statue of Berna coming to life, Ovid confronts the same problems as those raised in Hesiod. In the world, so the world of Theogony reads as one premise on the notion of dominance and supremacy. This in turn infects the implicit attitude men are to take to women in the poem. However, Ovid's solution to these issues is more in line with Latour's approach. And indeed the narrative directly advocates fusion with the Anthropocene product. Like Hesiod in the Theogony, um, Ovid focuses on the moment the statue becomes real. Both poets describe the physical forming of the statue in a few lines and then turn to the gifts given in a lavish list. In some cases, the gifts of the Met and the Theogony overlap, like clothing and flowers, but the similarity lies less in the use of the same gifts than that in each text, the gifts given are tradi traditionally those given to a cult statue. The process of the statue becoming a real woman is described by Ovid in a simile about wax molded by a thumb on the hot day. And the focus is the warmth entering her ivory body. 
Indeed, warmth is really important for the episode as a whole, not only because it's a sign of life, but also Ovid uses Ignaz fires as a metonym for love in the description. And I think that Hesiod is doing the same thing in the Theogony when he describes the cacon as an anti-porous, a thing that's in exchange for the theft of fire, but also that aren't an object that gets you hot instead of fire. In the ancient world, wax was not only used for statue making, it was also a material for writing upon. Indeed, wax is never mentioned in the Met explicitly as a material for sculpting, but it is included as a writing medium. The audience has already encountered Biblis writing on wax in book nine. In book 15, Pythagoras speaks of wax imprinted with new figures as an illustration of how everything changes. And here the simile is drawing an analogy with the text of the metamorphoses itself. Uh, sorry, there's Pythagoras. The metamorphoses itself as an object exemplifying eternal change that has also been marked by noes figuris, by new figures. Wax in the metamorphoses is a literary substance associated not just with books in general, but with this book in particular. With the phrase corpus erat, Ovid marks the conclusion of the statue's transformation. Corpus here specifically means breathing body, but the term also refers to a body of text, and the corpus, as a pun between body of work and physical body, reverberates throughout the metamorphoses. The phrase noa corpora in the proem, despite primarily referring to physical bodies, also suggests the poet turning to a new body of work. So the phrase corpus erat equates the realization of the statue with the realization of the text itself. The ability of a burner to become real encapsulates the ability of the Met as artwork to attain some kind of creative credibility, uh, very similar to what's happening with the Cacon and Theogony. But whereas Hesiod left us with a question as to how far we should abandon control and integrate ourselves with that aesthetic Anthropocene product, Ovid is an emphatic compositionist. Indeed, he goes so far as to suggest that this kind of artistic success can only be achieved through good reading, that is through the audience's active participation with and involvement in the poem. And this is my final point. In the episode, Pygmalion's prayer to Venus is not his heart's desire. Rather, the goddess is forced to do some interpretive work of what he's really saying. When Ovid wants to tell us that, that Venus understood Pygmalion's true desires, um, he uses the same verb, he uses the verb sense it. She, she felt what he was trying to say because when he prays, he prays for a, a woman who's like his ivory statue, not the ivory statue itself to come to life. This is the same verb in the same form, in the same line position that is used to describe the moment when a burner lives. The act of interpreting words correctly, therefore, is folded into the act of bringing those words to life. Engagement with text through the processes of reading helps to transform art into a vital and vibrant being. And this is in contrast to Hesiod, where the audience received the artistic object in an entirely passive manner. Thalma grabbed them, but in Ovid, we have active participation. In conclusion, the creation of Pandora and Aberna in their respective texts represents two juxtaposed reactions to Anthropocene products. In the Theogony, the goal is to dominate and master the Cacon. In Ovid, we see a successful fusion between sculptor and product. While the hope of children remains possible in both Hesiodic poems, the only tangible products of Pandora's realization in each text are disease and destruction. In the Met, a child is born, a child who also hints at a fusion between human and non-human. Ovid makes clear that Pathos is both the name of the couple's progeny and of the island. 
The offspring of this marriage, therefore, goes on to shape the natural environment in turn. And Pygmalion, in some sense, becomes a successful test case for the good Anthropocene approach, an artist capable of fully integrating with his reshaping of the natural world. But further, I think there are artistic implications for Ovid's remodeling of the Theogony's presentation of the Cacom. The Theogony combines the problem of women with a problem of textual interaction. What are we to make of the notion that in this didactic text, poetry is factually ambiguous? We're left somewhat bewildered by the problem that the poem poses. But in the Metamorphoses, Pygmalion's successful union with Averna is productive biologically and artistically. The artwork has become real. Its admirer completely, to quote the tour, folded into, involved with, implicated with, and incarnated into his creation. Possibly the lesson for us here, as the audience of the Metamorphoses, may be the virtue of self-transformation through the process of becoming intimate with this text, which can also be envisaged as a kind of Anthropocene product in its own right. Thank you. Thanks, Trista. That was fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, that was a really, actually, really good pair with Thomas's paper in a way, in the sense yeah. that, like, like Thomas, you've given us a really challenging, interesting frame to work with, but then a fantastically rich reading of a whole range of different texts there. Um, so, I mean, maybe I could start with one question while others are thinking. The one of the things I was, I was thinking about other possible theoretical framing for this and particularly about a kind of feminist framing here and I just wonder whether you're in a position to say a little bit more about the relationship between your argument and what we might call I suppose eco-feminist approaches which I guess are founded on the the, the, the assumption that um, engagement with the environment is often intertwined with um, and kind of mutually influential with um, uh, patriarchal assumptions I guess mm -hmm. that to simplify that's more or less sums it up so I mean does the, does the ancient material that you're looking at fit with that kind of framework or do you see a kind of dissonance here is that work in any sense an inspiration for your work or do you have you come at it from quite different angles actually and no I think that the feminist kind of critique is very is very important here in a sense I could have originally I was going to talk about Cynthia and this was a very different paper that integrated with that um I think in Hesiod it's particularly clear because of the, the kind of narrative throughout the poem that as the world changes, women are constantly the instruments of what are seen as mostly negative changes and men are constantly the, the people who set the world to rights. Um, so I think that in Hesiod at least it works. Um, and I'm interested in the fact that uh, as well as Pandora, um, Athena, who's born later, there's also a kind of, I'm thinking of Haraway's sort of feminist critique here, a cyborg creation, a kind of not really human being. So the women who are created in the, pro, in the poem at various points um, by men um, sort of interact with that discourse. I think the Ovid is, is slightly more playful and maybe in a way it offers less for that reading, uh, simply because one of the things I like about the Ovid Pygmalion narrative is that it's a happy ending to um, an elegiac love story or a happy ending to a love story in general, which I think is, is rare in the ancient world. Um, and so there, this kind of like fusion with the burner um, is extremely productive. And, and I agree that, you know, there are feminist readings of, of that interaction, certainly. 
Um, it's not, because I'm not saying that Ovid is putting forward anything, you know, that would be published in spare rib, but I think that it's slightly different from Hesiod's approach. I, I don't know how far that answers what you're asking, but that's my take on it. Yeah, thanks, that's really helpful. That's great. So we've got two other questions in the chat. I hope we'll have time quickly to get through both. But if you please do keep on putting other questions into the chat, because even if we don't have time to deal with them, Tressa will see them and can respond. So first of all, um, really interesting paper. I may have missed something, but why should each mention of Kakon and Hesiod necessarily refer to the same bad yeah. thing or the same kind of bad thing? Can they not refer to different discrete Kaka? Um. I just I simply took it as as the same thing throughout because he he's fashioning her um, and and he specifically says he makes a bad thing in return for the fire trick so she she is given like a kind of identity like that um, how, I I don't I don't know how would you read the passage if it was referring to if Kakon was referring to different objects throughout um, because for example like calling her a Kalon Kakon it seems to me that that's still the same object. It's just being uh, classified differently. But um, if you could write more in the chat, maybe I could respond more succinctly. Carry on with that in the in the chat. or, or yeah. And then the other question is from Monica. Again, Monica Gale, um, thanks for this wonderful paper. I loved your reading of it as inviting the reader's participation in the vivification of the text. I wonder whether or how this argument is affected by the fact that the mm -hmm. Pygmalion story is part of Orpheus's song, which vivifies the natural world. Right, yeah. Um, but then also in kind of counterpoint to Orpheus, because he can't bring his beloved back from the dead, um, despite being able to vivify the natural world in various ways. Um, and something very interesting about uh, Eurydice in Ovid it, is that she limps in the underworld, and the Scolia go crazy about this, and and say, well, Orpheus is all together, but she's limping. But I think maybe the reason that she's limping is because Ovid wants to make us think about elegy and that kind of personification as elegy of elegy as a limping being, and that way to draw a kind of direct parallel with what's happening with the burner. Um, but yes, I, on the other hand, you do have both craftsmen um, creating a kind of being able to, as you say, vivify the natural world through their, their art. Um, the difference is that Pygmalion is able to get to vivify, vivify what he wants, whereas Orpheus, the only thing that he wants, he can't vivify. Um, is that some kind of comment on plastic versus written work? I don't know. I, I, I don't think we have time to go there, but it'll be interesting. Thank you again for a fantastic paper. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. To access more podcasts from the workshop, check out the Humanities Institute's podcast channels on Apple, SoundCloud, and on Spotify.